Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Sakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome back. Now, before we go ahead and begin, I want to ask you to make sure to consider supporting this channel by becoming a $1 patron on Patreon in order to get early access to episodes as well as bonus episodes of this content. Another way that you can support us is we actually have our own coffee, if you'd like, which is in the description. Now, this coffee is delicious. I'm telling you right now, get it. It will taste like caffeinated hot chocolate. It is very good. Also, remember to get this month's Chirp audiobook, which is From the Ruins of Empire, which normally is like $20, but right now is on sale for only $3.99 for a limited time. So I highly recommend you get that. And finally... We have launched a History of Everything podcast YouTube channel that is giving shorter deep dives with visuals on specific requested topics. Each one of these videos is around five to eight minutes long, so it's super cool. It's really easy to get into. I guess that's the best way to say it's straight to the point. Yeah, It's straight to the point. It's not going to be meandering around like I kind of do on a lot of my different things with varying topics. So if you really want to get some of this information in an easily digestible form, Check it out because it's going to provide visuals and be very, very fun to do. But with all of that being said, who wants to learn about Nazi sex spies? I think that before we begin, though, that statement is going to need a little bit of a clarification first, don't you think? A little bit. I think if you just jump into it right off the bat, everyone's going to be like, what is he talking about? Yeah. Okay. So there are a number of different books and things that I found a while back that I've wanted to do videos slash podcast episodes on, but I never really had the time. And one of them is this particular book, which quite literally the title is Nazi Sex Spies, which is a whole host of varying different stories. And I say stories, but it, it's a deep dive into the look of the kind of sexual espionage that occurred during World War II that was utilized by the Nazis. Many different powers have used that essentially throughout all of history. That's something that is very common. But this is something that we have so much more detail about now. And it is, oh man, it, it is a wild trip. Because Gabby, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the phrase where like, um, what is the oldest job i guess or career the oldest Hunter? trade or profession yeah the oldest profession that's the right that's the term prostitution prostitution yes quite literally sex work is regarded as the oldest profession in history and it's also one of the ones that has been most useful with a number of different things whether it's controlling a populace whether it is um hmm, what should i even use for the term here like, yes, you have control over the populace, but also it's literally getting information. It's useful for infiltrating things. And that, that's been the case forever. Like people knew that um, other people are weak to a couple things. They're weak to money, food and sex. Like, I'm pretty sure that that describes humans as a whole, don't you think? I think so. Yeah. 
Um, I think before we start, though, how graphic is this? We should just give oh, like shoot, a yeah. disclaimer. Yeah, I, I should clarify. There are many, many more things that I could go in extensive detail on, but this will be rated PG-13. I may describe a thing that is done, but I am not going to go into an explicit detail to actually describe it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't want anyone going into this and then be like, wait, I should not be listening to this. So, you know, if you're uncomfortable with the topic of prostitution or Nazis or literally any of that tap out now. Also, do you know who this book is written by? Oh, no, it's actually literally sitting over there. I, I, I have this book sitting okay, over here on the counter. We can put it in the description. We can link it, I guess. If we can find it online, we can link the book to you if you want to check it out yourself it is really good i really wanted this to actually be one of the chirp audiobooks but unfortunately it's not in the library which i can only imagine someone having to read this aloud to people and just thinking like oh dear god like while i'm reading it this is how this is how spicy the book is you will be reading something and going oh yes blah 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 blah. oh oh and you'll just react to it like if if i was in charge of doing this as an audiobook it would take so so long because i would be constantly reacting to what it is that i'm reading it's spicy. So, without further ado, I wanted to get into this with the story of Salon Kitty. Now, Gabby, do you um do do, do you recognize that at all? Have you ever heard that phrase? Salon Sal- Kitty. Salon Kitty. No, why would I hear that phrase? I don't know. Like it, it's just something that maybe some people have heard of, and I didn't know if you might be familiar with it or not. A lot of these stories people have not heard of, but I'm going to go ahead and describe this and and explain the context that led up to this. So, Gabby, you have this woman by the name of Katrina Zamet, basically Catherine Kitty Schmidt is what her name was. But she had a different she wasn't German. She was actually of Jewish descent. But of course, she kept that hidden because we're talking about something in Nazi Germany. She was born in 1882 and was born into a kind of working class family. At the time she married, she had a daughter who was named Kathleen and then ultimately got divorced. Now, her lack of formal education did not stop any of her ambitions because she was actually a remarkably ambitious woman. And so after years of working on the streets in order to provide for her family, she opened her own brothel in 1922 on the southwest margin of Tiergarten, which is the section in Berlin. And she never applied for a liquor license or anything, despite the fact that she was offering beer, wine, cocktails, basically all different kinds of alcohol to her clients. And as a result of that, the authorities ended up closing her business in the early 1930s. But that didn't stop her. See, what she then did next is she paid her fine. She applied for a liquor license again, like actually in the first place. And then she opened a second brothel later in another location. So when Kitty goes and opens this second brothel, she hires around 20 girls, along with three domestic staff members. And around this time, she began to deposit her money in London in bank accounts because the way that things were going in Germany with the Weimar Republic and inflation and everything that was happening, it um, it was it wasn't exactly good. Do you remember what happened um, with inflation? In the Weimar, like we, we've talked about that before here with Germany and inflation and what happened. Do you know how much a like a loaf of bread essentially cost? A lot of money is what I'm guessing. Like if you were going to give a physical description of like the amount of money that you would need in order to buy it. I'm not talking about a number. I'm talking about like a weight, like if you were going to be carrying it. 
If I were to be carrying the bread? Yeah, you know, like, you know, how you have money in your purse and that kind of thing. So you're like a purse full of money, a bag full of money, like, you know, the, 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 this kind of thing. A jar full of money. <laughs> nope. In this case, it was a wheelbarrow. See, that was going to be my second. That was that was going to be my guess. But I was like, that's ridiculous. Nope. But that, that's I'm what happened. I'm so upset. They literally, at some point, it would require a more money than you could physically carry was needed in order to purchase a single loaf of bread because that that's just how bad the inflation got. So how did they how much did they pay for iPhones? Okay. Yeah. Gabby, it's the 1930s in Germany. <laughs> I <joking>. I don't. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when you say that for you, if you want to think about the physical amount for how much something would cost, do you have any idea how expensive some of the early items actually were that we take for granted now? Like the microwave. You know how much the original microwave cost? I'm guessing like a thousand bucks. We're talking like anywhere between three to five thousand dollars. For a microwave, for a microwave, bad. Yes, we're talking about a microwave that is like five times the size, easily, of anything you get in a store right now. You could go to Walmart right now and get a microwave for like forty, fifty, sixty bucks. Where are you getting a fifty bucks a microwave for fifty bucks? You can get really cheap ones. Okay, what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, sex work in Berlin and inflation, and then bread, and then bread went to microwaves. Okay, let's just focus. That, that's kind of how let's things... Just, let's just return. Okay, 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 okay. So the gist of it is she took a bunch of her money, which would have been essentially worthless if it was in Berlin, and she did a lot of her banking overseas in order to kind of maintain a more stable, better business. Now, of course, th this is going to sound weird when I say this, but the money situation got significantly better under the Nazis because... They stabilized and fixed a lot of the economy. But that being said, in order to make sure that her lines of cash were secure, she still did do all of her banking overseas. And so along with legitimate bank transfers, Kitty would send her girls over to London carrying large sums of just cash that were in specifically designed corsets. They were literally smuggling money this way. Kitty also helped Jewish refugees flee to London and they carried her currency in order to be deposited, kind of like as a method of payment. She was denounced twice for currency smuggling, which was illegal. You were not supposed to be transferring the currency of Germany outside of Germany, but she did manage to wiggle out of any trouble at the time. By early 1939, her clients began to complain that the location of the brothel where she was at in, and I'm going to butcher this name because again, it's in German, and I apologize for any German names that I butcher over the course of this, Kurfürstendamm. Kerfirstendam. 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 I'm pretty sure that's how I would say that. Essentially, it was too conspicuous. It was like way too obvious that there was something there because you weren't actually supposed to, um, like prostitution was illegal. But it's something that was conveniently ignored in many different places. It was illegal, but she ran a brothel that only got shut down because she didn't have a liquor license. Well, there's a reason why. Because it was a brothel, but it wasn't treated as a brothel. And this is how all brothels essentially were done. Do you remember, we watched that show on Hulu about with the prostitutes, remember? They would have boarding houses. The Harley, yes, literally, that's what it was. So she operated a boarding house, and that the boarding house was actually a brothel. So she had girls who would stay there as boarders, but they were prostitutes. Okay, actually, recently, a town banned a certain amount of tenants, so you can't have more than like six roommates or something, because... Groups of girls were living together and it was leading to 
basically prostitution, but it's modern day, so they can't have that. So they literally had to limit how many people could live in the house at one time. Yep. Yep. This has quite literally been a thing for hundreds upon hundreds. Like, that is the norm. That is literally a norm of what people would do. So it's getting a little too obvious that there is something that is going on there. So once again, Kitty has to move locations of her business. And this time it was going to be to a place called Gisebekstrab 11, which was located in a more wealthy section of Berlin because her business was actually doing very well, where her clients frequented the new place that was going to be called Pension Schmidt. Like it was nice. This was located on the third floor and it was advertised as a quote unquote boarding house for actors. The way that it essentially worked is you'd have visitors that would be met by a person by the name of Elvira, who is in a maid's uniform because, you know, it's a proper establishment and they would be taken to the parlor. Kitty would then present the client with a photo album of all the available prostitutes that they would be able to choose from. And he would then make his choice. Elvira would then fetch his date. Now, what they usually did is they would have a couple girls that were just there at all times because, you know, it's a boarding house and there would be five or six of them there at any given point. But you can't have too many girls there. Otherwise, it's obvious. So what they did is they had the other girls live in other buildings that were within like a five or ten minute walk. And then what or I say walk if they were further away, what they would then do is have those girls fetched by taxi so that they could, you know, perform their duties. It it was like a very under the table, very easy, simple, but quite effective process. That is, of course, until the Nazi authorities got involved. So, Gabby, I have to ask, how familiar are you with Nazi policing slash espionage or I guess things like that. How familiar do you think I would be? Okay, you know, that probably was a dumb question that I should ask here, especially since we're getting into things that I was not really aware of. So my knowledge when it came to Nazi espionage was that you had the Abwehr and the Abwehr was essentially like the Nazi version of MI6 or, you know, the CIA. Like it was the people that were doing a lot of the foreign espionage in order to catch the enemies of Germany. But I didn't really consider that the Abwehr were not going to be necessarily the ones who were doing stuff domestically. You know, like the FBI, the FBI would be looking at a lot of stuff that is here in America. So in the case of Germany, you had something called, and again, I'm going to butcher this, the Sicker Heidendin Sicker Again, I know that I'm butchering it. I'm going to call this SD. It was the SD. And this was the intelligence agency for the Nazi party. And it was the parent agency of the Schutzstaffel or the SS. In other words, the SD was the party's spy machine. The Abwehr would perform a similar function, but it reported directly to the German military and would work overseas. So the mission of the SD was to keep the top Nazi leaders informed about any domestic and international opposition movements, essentially anything that would be a threat to their operations. There wasn't any sphere of influence that eluded the scrutiny of the SD and its agents. And as time went on, the SD would develop a very sinister reputation, quite similar to the Gestapo. 
Hey everyone, it's like who you here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So the SD reported to Reinhard Heydrich, who was head of the Reichssicherheitsschamt or the RSHA, or the Reich Security Main Office. And that was until 1942, when um, he was assassinated. Himmler took control for a year, and in 1943, you had Ernst Kaltenbrunner, who was promoted to lead the RSHA. Now, after the end of the war, Himmler committed suicide, while Kaltenbrunner was convicted and then executed in 1946 as a war criminal. A lot of these guys, um, as you're going to learn, they didn't exactly end up having good fates, typically, because the stuff that they did was um, they were some of the primary targets of people who were doing the really awful things during the war. So during the late 1930s, Heydrich decided that he was going to use a scheme that had to be developed to spy on German dignitaries, on foreign diplomats, high ranking Nazi party members, literally the anyone that could have any degree of influence. And the purpose was to obtain intelligence as well as determine the true attitudes towards Hitler and the Nazis. Because, you know, kind of like what happened with, um, do you remember the Inquisition in Spain? Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Ah, there you go. You know the meme. Basically, the gist of one of the things that happened is that you had all these people who converted to Christianity, but they didn't actually believe, and rightfully so, that many of the people who converted at the point of a sword actually converted. You know. The same thing happened all over the world, like with Islam and with every other kind of religion that would take over an area. And what would end up happening is the people would secretly harbor their own beliefs. So just because someone professed loyalty to the Nazi party and Hitler didn't actually mean that they were loyal. So they needed to watch them. Heydrich did not trust most of the senior level Nazis or the Wehrmacht or literally anyone. And so responsibility for devising and executing a plan fell on the shoulders of the head of the SD, the SS Brigadefuhrer Walter Schellenberg. So Walter Schellenberg joined the SS in 1933, and by 1935, he was working for Heydrich in counterintelligence. Over time, Schellenberg became one of Himmler's and Heydrich's most trusted lieutenants, and he played a major role in many of the pre-war preparations for Hitler's goals of expanding German territory including the Anschluss with Austria, the invasion of the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia, literally everything that was to be German. And after the invasion of Poland in September of 1939, Schellenberg was given responsibility for devising a plan of occupation of Britain after the Germans planned to invade the island. You want to know something kind of funny, though, this whole thing? Actually, you know what? No, no. I'm not going to spoil that. That's going to be a fun little detail for later. So the gist of it is that as soon as the Nazis took power in 1933, 
Kitty began her money transfers to London as a way to, you know, maintain more control over her business. One method, of course, was to help Jewish refugees flee the country, and she would send money with them to be deposited into her bank accounts in London because, you know, that way because she couldn't go herself. And this is before people can just easily transfer money. So by 1939, Heydrich and Schellenberg came up with the idea to spy on dignitaries, and their plan revolved around Kitty and Pension Schmidt. Now, of course, the Nazis came to power in 1933, and things began to get um, quite spicy in Germany. I'm just going to use that terminology there. So Kitty, who had already been transferring money to London, began to accelerate those money transfers going into the later 1930s, and by mid-1939, Kitty decided, okay, time's up, we have got to leave Germany. The SD had broken the code of her messages, though, to her people who were trying to assist her, and they allowed her to board a train to Holland. At the Dutch border, the Gestapo then arrested Kitty on the 29th of June, and they took her back to Berlin, where she spent two weeks incarcerated in a dungeon cell at Gestapo headquarters. This was not good. And on July 14th, Kitty was taken from her cell and transported to Schellenberg's office at Meinbixtraub 10, where she met the SD officer for the first time. And this was going to be a relationship that, um, it was going to be fruitful, but it was going to be bad. You see, Schellenberg quizzed her about her business practices, essentially anything that had to do with what she did in operating her business. In particular, he wanted to know every single detail on each of the prostitutes who were working for Kitty. He wanted to know their intelligence levels, what motivated them to work as prostitutes, how much they earned, everything. And Schellenberg finished his interrogation and got to the point of everything, like what it was that he was working towards. The SD knew that Kitty had assisted Jews in leaving Germany. And Schellenberg pointed out that that was a punishable offense. She could face the death penalty at best, or she could be sent to a concentration camp for the rest of her life. He also told her the consequences would not be pleasant for smuggling money out of Germany, even if she somehow got off the previous charges. The third charge against her was the fraudulent passport that she tried to use in order to sneak out of the country. Schellenberg calmly told her that he could finish her off with a simple stroke of the pen. She was done. She could either have her entire life fall apart, be executed or sent into hard labor, or she could cooperate. Now, she acknowledged her predicament. She knew that she was absolutely screwed, so she asked him to give her another chance. Anything that she could do in order to prove her, quote-unquote, loyalty. She would do anything that he asked her. And at that point, Schellenberg offered her a deal that she could not refuse. Schellenberg told Kitty that he would return all of her belongings except the foreign exchange currency that they had, you know, taken from her when she was arrested. Kitty was to remain in Berlin and report in person daily to Schellenberg's office. She was to carry on as though nothing had absolutely happened. It was going to be business as usual. And Kitty was not to discuss this with anyone. And if someone asked questions, they were to report it immediately to the SD. All staff changes in the brothel were to be discussed with Schellenberg, and in return for this, Kitty agreed to carry out any instructions that Schellenberg or his agents gave to her. And at that point, Kitty was free to leave. She returned to Pension Schmidt, everything seemed to be fine, 
But what she would soon realize was that Schellenberg and the SD now owned her and all of her business. So Kitty quickly brought the brothel back to its original disciplines. It was like really nothing had ever happened. But unbeknownst to Kitty, 30 days later, Heydrich approved Schellenberg's plan for a top-secret operation, codenamed Salon Kitty. So Schellenberg assigned the SS Untersturmführer Karl Schwartz the task of planning and executing this new spy operation. The plan was going to be simple. The SD would take over Kitty's brothel. They would hire 20 women to work as prostitutes, but they would report directly to Schwartz and Kitty, would not have any room or interaction or anything with them. The rooms themselves would be wired for sound, and the basements would be set up as a kind of recording studio. And then while being, um, intimate, I guess I'm going to use the term, the women would then extract information from their clients. The conversations were going to be recorded, they would be pressed into permanent wax discs for the, like, whatever it is that they said, and the transcriptions of the conversations were going to be sent to Schellenberg. Immediately after the client left, the female agent would then submit a written report to Schwartz of her session and the information that she obtained. This, of course, being a plan where it's like um, the prostitutes knew that they were being recorded or the people knew that they were being recorded, but they didn't know the level or depth of how they were being recorded. And then, of course, they would have to submit this written report to make sure that there was no discrepancies between what was actually recorded versus what was written, because that way they needed to verify whether or not the prostitutes were actually trustworthy, I guess is the plan. Schwartz then made Kitty sign a document where she pledged to obey all orders and not discuss anything. She was required to report any relevant information that she possibly thought could be useful to Schwartz, and any transgression on Kitty's part would result in her death immediately. She signed the form, she requested a copy so that she would have record of it, but Schwartz declined and told her that if she wanted to read it at any point, she could just stop by the office. In that way, I don't really know necessarily why that is the case, possibly so that if someone somehow came across it with her, that th th there would be nothing that would link back to them. Everything about this was supposed to be absolutely top secret. And so days later, Schwartz and his minions began an inspection of the entire premise. Not even Kitty knew that the whole plan was like as extensive as it was, as each participant in the operation was only aware of their specific responsibilities. There was only actually three people that were SD officers that had complete knowledge of the operation. That was Heydrich, Schellenberg, and Schwartz. No one else. Everyone just had to do their part, do their job, and stay quiet. So within a few months, Schwartz had hired new prostitutes. He wired all the rooms, and he set up the recording studio in the basement. Although the specially trained prostitutes were required to submit a written report, they were never told that their, um, their bedroom activities were actually being recorded. Isn't that illegal? Okay, Gabby, it's literally Nazi Germany. What do you want me to say I here? I feel like, like they had rules still. Yeah, yeah, there were so there were rules. But you guess what? There were a lot of different things from a lot of different people with a lot of different, you know, power sets that they recorded with their um desires. Like we learned a lot of dirty details about some of the uh, the Nazi leaders that you, you, you probably were, were not ever otherwise going to hear. Why were they talking about this with a prostitute, though? 
well, it, they, they weren't talking about necessarily the dirty stuff. It's like, OK, imagine you are using sex in order to get what you want. I want you to imagine that, Gabby. OK. Now think about what you want is information rather than just like take out the trash or something like that. <laughs> OK. In that scenario, if you have a spy who has specifically been trained to do these actions, they can be very persuasive physically and mentally. I just feel like they were weak sauce if they were talking about secrets in this well, well, welcome, specific Welcome setting. to the human experience. Literally, welcome to the human experience. That's just kind of how things go. <laughs> so they get everything set up. They have these bedrooms wired and it, it's because it, they're not just recording the conversations. As I said, they're recording all the activities because everything has to be monitored. And so what they do is they create a special kind of album, one which contains the pictures of all the new female SD agents. And this was what was going to be used as a selection album for the specific targeted men to pick up for their special date for the evening. Because that's just it. It wasn't like every man was going to be a part of this. No, no, no. Specifically, what they would do is they needed to use this service for specific men to see if they could get information from them. And so the women who were employed by Kitty, they fit into typically one of three categories. Around a third of them were married. A third of them were controlled by pimps. And the rest were simply just freelance prostitutes. And so neither Schellenberg nor Schwartz believed that these women were going to be suitable for the work that they had planned. So it was agreed that the SD was going to hire its own kind of group of independent contractors in order to supplement Kitty's girls who were expected to entertain the normal customers. Because that's just it. You still needed to keep up appearance. This needed to be a kind of brothel that was going to be designed for everyone. If it only appealed to one specific clientele then people were going to start to think that something was up with it. So Schellenberg used his position in order to talk to the heads of the departments where he believed the potential candidates might be found. SS Gruppenführer Wolf, chief of staff for Himmler and the head of the Liebensborn organization, agreed to cooperate. SS Gruppenführer Arthur Nieb, chief of criminal police, also agreed to cooperate by using his vice squads as a kind of um, employment scouts. So Schwartz struck out trying to get 30 SS and police chiefs to identify any kind of potential candidates. They took it, you know, more as a joke. And after the deadline passed, all of them submitted literally no reports. Neve's men then rounded up 50 women for the first round of interviews with Schwartz. It, essentially, what they were doing is they were patrolling the streets looking for prostitutes to find them that would be good for the job. The qualification for what would count as good for a successful candidate were a few things. They needed to be intelligent. They needed to be attractive. They needed to have a kind of knowledge of foreign languages, because, of course, if you're going to be sleeping with people of all different groups and backgrounds, you need to be able to understand them to know their secrets. And they needed to have a faith in the Nazi part. Not, not a faith. They needed to be devoted. That's the better term for it. They needed to be devoted to the Nazi cause. And you know what the, 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 final, the final thing in here that they needed was, Gabby? I'm really not sure. Well, if I recall correctly, the exact uh, terminology that they used was that they had to be man crazy. You know, they, they just um, they really they really had to like the presence of um, uh, of men. I'm Jane Perlez. 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So the women, they came from all over Germany. You had some from Austria. You had some from Eastern European countries. You had them from essentially everywhere. And they were between the ages of 20 and 30, all with above average intelligence. And many of them actually were already married, which is one of the more interesting things. Now, most of them were fluent in around three or more foreign languages. There was one common aspect among all of them. They all had a kind of dark past, something where they had a run in with the SD, which would be able to be used against them, something that would be able to keep them under control. So 20 women were ultimately chosen and the rest went home. But for the remainder of the war, they were under constant surveillance by by the police. Like once you are kind of involved with this, they were not going to be letting you simply just go. The selected women were then inducted into the SS and they swore an oath to Hitler. The women were then taken down to Ordensburg, which was in southern Germany, for training. Their training included things like marksmanship, unarmed combat, first aid, the art of conversation, as well as just general intelligence techniques. By the time they graduated, each of them knew how to expertly make, quote-unquote, customers speak about any kind of state secrets that they wanted in their honest opinions. And so returning to Berlin the women were then required to live within a 10-minute walk of Pension Schmidt. For 10 days in early 1940, the brothel was shut down in order to allow the SD to wire the building for microphones. Walls were drilled and grooved in order to allow the microphones and the wires leading to the basement. The microphones were then placed high enough on the walls so that they couldn't be reached. The drawing room and the parlor each had two sets of eight microphones. The other rooms had four microphones each. It was set up so that the slightest of whispers could be recorded, and every room was bugged except for the bathrooms. It's, it's actually like kind of odd that that is literally the only place that there was any semblance of privacy was in the bathrooms, which seems also doubly odd because I'm pretty sure that considering what kind of skills and things that were offered to these clients that maybe they probably would want to use the bathrooms for more than just, you know, their business. I guess. Well, the basement listening posts had five monitoring desks, and each was equipped with two turntables. Ten rooms could be recorded simultaneously. And this is how they had it set up. At the same time, Schwartz had the inside refurbished with brand new wallpaper, with curtains, carpet, everything that you could possibly imagine, and the bill for the renovations was coming out of Kitty's pocket. Which, I mean, you know, they they kind of had a bunch of dirt on her, so they were going to uh, let her pay for the renovations instead of it just coming out of the state's budget. And when the clients returned, 
they really approved of it. Everything looked really awesome, at least from, you know, the feedback that they got. And no one really had any knowledge about the real work that took place. Now, after the war, and this is for something is a little fact that is kind of interesting. It was estimated that approximately 25,000 recordings on these wax discs were made. And the location of the brothel came under the control of the East German government. So naturally, with it having been the Soviets, we don't really have anything else that came after. So unfortunately, they appear to have been lost. After reopening, nothing about Pension Smith appeared to be out of the ordinary to all the regular patrons, except, of course, the, you know, the place had been given a complete makeover, which they did appreciate. Kitty and her business had developed an excellent and very classy reputation over the years, so it wasn't really hard for the SD to kind of publicize the brothel. People knew about it. They knew. And the, like, well-to-do in society, they were very, very well aware of this. And so they trained these SD agents to infiltrate Berlin society with the purpose of guiding specific targets to the pension Schmidt. You see, the code word they used was something called Rothenberg. And so when a particular man was chosen by Schellenberg or Heydrich or anyone in the upper echelons to visit pension Schmidt, the future client was going to be instructed to say Rothenberg or I come from Rothenberg to the hostess. What would happen is Kitty would then be summoned to meet the quote-unquote Rothenberg client, and she would bring the special like photographic album and then assist the client in choosing one of the special girls for the evening. The idea, of course, in this is that they would be giving something exclusive where you had even prettier girls, even better trained girls who would be able to do this. The selected female agent would then be notified, would walk to the brothel, and meet the client in the parlor. After a drink or two, the couple would then be taken to one of the bugged rooms, and it was the responsibility of Schellenberg's agent to get the client to talk. The goal was to see who were the enemies of Germany and the Nazi party, and to get the man to divulge any secret information that they possibly could. Heydrich believed that there was a strong undercurrent of disloyalty among the top Nazi officials, which kind of makes sense when you're in a society where everything is so strictly controlled it's naturally going to happen that there are going to be people who swear allegiance, but in reality are not actually loyal. Soon, German generals, senior Nazi leaders, high-ranking foreign diplomats, etc., all began to make very frequent Pension Schmidt visits, along with famous actors and other celebrities. And from a pricing standpoint, Kitty actually had an initial problem because, at first, there was no difference in price between the normal prostitutes and the special prostitutes, just that they were reserved. So in order to make sure that, you know, it was something that was actually valuable and people didn't question as much, she was forced to obtain Schwartz's permission to actually charge more for the SD's selected guests. During the first year, it is estimated that around 10,000 Rothenberg men visited Salon Kitty. So I'm, I'm, and I want you to think about that. That is 10,000 men, right? There are 20 of these girls, which means these 20 girls approximately saw around 2,000... No, wait, no, hold on. I'm doing that math wrong. 500, yeah, that's what it would be. 10,000 divided by 20 would be 500 men each over the course of, like, the operating time. That is genuinely pretty wild. But that's how it was. One of the more talkative clients... I think you're really going to like this. So one of the more talkative clients they had was actually Mussolini's son-in-law. Like, not Mussolini himself, but rather his son-in-law and the foreign minister, Count 
Galazzo uh, or Galeazzo. I think it's Galeazzo is how I would say it. But Galeazzo Chiano. Now, he did not have favorable things to say about Hitler at all. He once mentioned that he and Mussolini joked about Hitler and called him a ridiculous little clown, which is um, not, not, not exactly what you um, want to say about the person that you're allied with, with a much more powerful military and government. Well, Chiano was eventually executed under orders from Mussolini, so that was just something that, you know, happened. The Spanish foreign minister, Don Ramon Serrano Sr., he was a guest when he let slip to his female host that Spain was about to occupy Gibraltar. And the Germans had already come up with their own plan to invade Gibraltar, i.e. Operation Felix, and they successfully blocked the Spaniards from their plan of operation. SS Obstergruppenführer Sepp Dietrich managed all 20 women for the entire evening, but he never revealed any dark secrets, which is kind of crazy. You know, he got all 20 of them. And here is where we're going to get a kind of wild one. Remember when I was talking about all the weird sexual escapades that some of these guys were up to? Well, the SD even tested the propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels or Goebbels. I think it was Goebbels is how I would say his name. They tested the propaganda minister? Well, Goebbels, Gabby, he was the guy who created all the stuff for the Nazis. Like the worst of the Nazi dirt that they would be creating to control people and to inflame tensions. He was the guy that was the master of this. He was a real sleazebag, but he was good at what he did. The only dirt that they got on him was that um, he, he, he enjoyed a very specific act, and that was you know, watching women have sex with one another. He specifically would order groups of women together for, you know, lesbian play. That's it. That's it. That, that's that's what he liked. That's all he had. That was his dirty stuff. That that's that's what he wanted. All that propaganda. And that's his only thing. Yeah. You know, it, it was also very um, interesting because that is a very antisocial act under Nazi law. Homosexuality was blatantly illegal. Like that was bad. That, that was something that if you were homosexual, you were going to be sent off to a concentration camp. And here was the guy who was creating all of the propaganda, telling people how evil it was. And he was going to the like brothels and making them do that. That that's that that's what he wanted. As I, I've said this before, but there are very different sets of rules between who's actually in power and, you know, the, everyone else who actually has to follow the rules. People oftentimes feel that way, especially when it comes to any kind of political system. And there's a lot of stuff that has happened even here in America and, you know, people who are particularly wealthy. But this was the Nazis. And for as much of their purity for everything that they pushed uh, there, there were a number of um, deviants by their own standard they wanted. You know, and that's just kind of what happens. One of the frequent vi visitors they also had was Reinhard Heydrich himself, who was one of the heads of the program. But he gave very strict orders that all microphones were supposed to be turned off in the room when he went in. I guess they weren't turned off, were they? Well, there was actually one occasion in which it did happen where, um, who was it? Schellenberg. I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing the name for it here. So the, the other guy who was also the head forgot to turn it off and it nearly caused a whole thing where the incident had to be brought up before Himmler, but the whole thing was swept under the rug afterwards. After that one incident, Essentially, everything else was, you know, he was the one that controlled the microphone, so he had them all turned off. Or he could just not go. Yeah, no, you want to know one of the, the spiciest parts about this entire thing? Sure. Okay, so Heydrich, right? He was married. He had a wife, right? 
who was like this really big socialite that he brought into all the other stuff. And, you know, he was constantly cheating on her. Um, so he was constantly cheating on her at the brothel. The other guy, Schillenberg, he did not use the brothel. He didn't like to. But he also had a lover. Do you know who his lover was? Who? Heydrich's wife. Are you joking? Nope, nope, nope. That is literally a thing. They were lit. He was literally screwing the other guy's wife while the other guy was using the whorehouses. Like that, 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 that's literally what it was. Is this book like real? Oh my God. It's so real. And it's like that. This is where I was like, I was going through something. Oh my God. This is, it sounds like an episode of like some kind of drama. It's but, like, um, some sort of like soap opera. That, that literally. But with a lot more murder. It's like really and sad. terrible stuff. And, but also like, I love gossip, you know? Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, that, 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 that's kind of what happens. The, the thing, though, is that by 1942, the number of Kitty's clientele had diminished significantly because she began to lose all of her normal girls because the clients preferred the SD trained agents because, you know, naturally, they were significantly more skilled. Additionally, Hitler and his cronies had become, you know, disillusioned with the whole thing because by this time, internal affairs didn't matter as much as the external ones. Because by 1942, the majority of men were already fighting in the war. The only time they were really getting customers was when men were coming back from the front. And all these important diplomats and all of these other people, they weren't nearly as involved because, well, everyone was heavily involved in the war. Internal things just simply weren't as important. And then, in July of 1942, a British bomb took out the building that they were working in, and they were once again forced to move. Only this time, it just wasn't really going to be as useful. So Schellenberg then chose to shut down Operation Salon Kitty, and he turned the brothel back over to Kitty, but with a ominous warning that she had to remain silent. And that is pretty much it. Kitty Schmidt survived the war, but she never spoke about her arrangement with Schellenberg and the SD. She died in 1954 in her little apartment, and her obituary noted the passing of, quote, the owner of an establishment run along the Paris customs and favored arranger of gallant entertainment for foreign guests of the Reich government, end quote. After Kitty's death, her daughter took over the brothel, but eventually changed the name to the Pension Florian. Kathleen was actually married to a guy called Jean Florian Matei, and they had a son called Joachim. Kathleen then passed away in 1992 at the age of 86. After his mother's death, Joachim then lost the lease at the apartment that they had owned, and the brothel was then permanently shuttered. Everything just kind of came to an end. Really, by the end, it just wasn't simply useful as it was in the beginning to get dirt on people. And that is the story of Salon Kitty. Honestly, in the end, it, it's a dark tale, but it, it really does play out kind of like a um, kind of like a little spy movie. But one focused on a lot more of internal developments, not even a spy movie. This is like something that you would see with a movie that is associated with like a police force, rather. Very interesting. I find it entertaining. But anyway, thank you to everyone who has listened. I hope you have a good rest of your day. And I will see you all next time, my hosts. Goodbye. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. 
Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.